You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello, everyone. I am Mari Fagel. My co-host, Ebony Williams, is out of town this week. But here to join me today, I'm very excited about this. This is Akila Shirils. I want to tell the audience how I met him first, and I'd like Akila to introduce himself. Uh, he is a fascinating campaigner against gang violence and against the death penalty. And the way I met Akila was last year at UCLA, there was a debate Against the death penalty, Prop 34 was on the ballot last November to abolish the death penalty in California, and I heard him speak, and I just thought he was so fascinating. I had to have him on our show. So, Akilah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Mari, for the invitation. <laughs> and now, I want to give our audience a little bit of your background before we get into the interview, uh, because you've lived a very interesting life, <laughs> and I think a lot of the experiences that you have had have shaped your efforts and what you do. So uh, you grew up in Watts, yes, and you you were a part of the gang culture there, yes. And so I want to ask you about that before we get into what what you do now. Tell me about sure. that. Yeah, I I grew up in watching the Jordan Housing Projects. Um, I'm the youngest of ten kids in my family, and uh, you know uh, we grew up poor, you know, and all of the challenges that comes with poverty. Um, but, uh, I was fortunate, although we didn't have a lot of material possessions, uh, we had a huge imagination as kids. And one of the things that we used to do on a consistent basis, we get together and talk about this thing we call the story. And, um, we, we would, the story was kind of like, you know, we'd be walking down the street and fall in the hole and meet this Chinese master who would bless us with special powers and gifts, kind of like the power Rangers. And we would utilize these powers to change the world. Um, and we told the story so much as kids that uh, the story literally became my mantra. Um, and I, um, I, I believe that one day I would grow up and do something great. And it just, it was a theme that played in my, in my imagination, you know, um, you know, to this day. Um, so, you know, growing up in Watts was challenging. Um, I lost one of my really good friends, Ronzel Pointer, um, in junior high school, was shot and killed on campus. Um, and, uh, you know, it shifted something in me. I graduated from school, went to Cal State Northridge, um, had a transformative experience shared with the woman there. You know, a woman always changes one's life. I met this amazing woman who I shared with, um, I shared with her that I was sexually abused as a kid for the first time. And this was my transformative experience because I never questioned the violence that I saw happening in the neighborhood because I, I really, um, I, I didn't have language to understand, you know, what was happening and, and, you know, why those things happen. Um, because ultimately it meant the question of violence that I experienced in my own personal life, you know? Um, so, you know, a, a lot of the violence that we see happen in, 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 in neighborhoods like Watts, um, uh, I think that uh, at the root of it is this sexual, physical, psychological abuse that people go through. Um, and there are no outlets, you know, because it's a total taboo in the culture to even speak about these things. So it fueled my um, my involvement in gangs. And so when I had this transformative experience in college, um, I went back home and I wanted to do something about the killing. 
because this was 1988-89. It was the height of the war in L.A., some 1,100 murders a year that we were experiencing in L.A. County alone. And you said, you've said in the past that you lost 13 friends in the year 1989 alone. Yes, 13 friends. And tell me about the gang violence in specific and the Crips versus the Bloods and what was going on that led to these deaths. You know, um... You know, some folks, you know, like to, I don't, I don't see myself necessarily as a, as an anti-gang activist. I'm, I'm actually pro-gang because I believe that gangs are surrogate families. Um, you know, many of the individuals who are participating in gangs lost a nuclear family to the real killer, which is poverty, which is planned and systemic in a capitalist system, unfortunately. Um, you know, and I'm not condoning, you know, the, the, the violence that are perpetrated by individuals who claim the set, who claim gangs, but, You know, Connie Rice did a report about seven years ago, you know, for the city of Los Angeles in which, you know, she said that less than three to five percent of so-called gang members are actually committing violent crimes and murder. And it's true. Um, I can count on one hand. I'm still very engaged in the Jordan Down housing projects and watch where I grew up at. And I can count, you know, the those individuals who are involved in those type of antisocial activities on one hand. Um, So, you know, this this, you know, gangs, Crips and Bloods. Uh, the conflict is over, you know, hurt feelings and 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 drug deals going bad and um, and miscommunications and misunderstanding. And in the process, you know, people have lost their lives. Um, and unfortunately, over the past 30 years, it's been some 20,000 lives in L.A. County alone. Um, it's a major mental health epidemic. I would say that that three to five percent of gang members who are, who are who are shooting people and killing folks have serious mental health issues. They get no type of support. They get no services. Um, if you're convicted of a crime, you lose your status in a sense as a as a victim, as a survivor of violent crime. We also understand that the the the, the number one preemptive motive motive for murder is self protection in my neighborhood. You know because it it is a war zone. You know so. Um, you know, the Crip and Blood phenomenon has, you know, spread like a disease all across the country. Um, but I was also instrumental in 1992 in organizing the peace treaty that uh, that changed the quality of life in our neighborhood. I wanted to ask you about that because in reading your bio, I thought it was very interesting. You know, you chose a different path, as you said, than some of your friends. You went to college. At 19, you founded the American um to heal gang violence with football star Jim Brown, and yes. you orchestrated this truce between the Crips and the Bloods. How did you do that, and and how did it work? Well, um, you know, Jim Brown, you know, uh, utilized his celebrity to give us a platform to to speak to our issues in a way that no one never had before. Um, he didn't see us as the predators and as the you know just the perpetrators of this violence that was happening in our community. He helped us to, to, to gain really a macro view of what was happening and, and, and our role um, in it. So, um, um, you know, the organizing of the peace treaty, you know, began with Minister Farrakhan and Stop the Killing Tour, you know, in 1989. Minister Farrakhan went to every major city across the country. We bought about 25, about 25, 30 guys from our neighborhood to hear the message, along with another 1,500 Crips and Bloods throughout the city. Um, who came to hear the message of we have to stop killing each other because it's an orchestrated kind of plan, you know, for us to commit genocide against ourselves. Um, Jim Brown offered his house as a neutral ground for us to have some conversations. We had six big meetings. We were initially talking about trying to organize a peace treaty in the whole city. And it was my brother Daoud who actually suggested that, you know, we need to start on a smaller scale. Let's start with Watts. 
because Watts is a trim tab neighborhood, you know. Um, we're, we're trendsetters for the West Coast gangsterism, hip hop. So he was like, hey, if we bring together the four major housing projects, we would create a domino effect for peace throughout the city. So we started by marching in all of the housing developments, talking with a lot of the cats that we grew up with, bringing the real, the killers to the table to engage in conversation with other guys in the neighborhood and, and from our rival neighborhoods. And it took us about four years of intense conversation of, um, we, we developed this 15 chapter self-esteem life skills curriculum with Hall of Fame great Jim Brown. We implemented in the prisons initially, and then we started getting contracts in the community. And, you know, there's a direct correlation between, you know, uh, you know, gang conflicts and shots that are called in institutions and in prison institutions and shots that's called on the street. They, they both affect each other. So being able to run this, this 15 chapter self-esteem life skills curriculum basically was a short course in human development. It gave us an opportunity to express ourselves without reprisal. Um, you know, how you feel is how you feel. We learned about how to make better decisions, how to deal with our family, how to make money and save our money properly. Um, and Jim was there as a mentor. He played a father figure. You know, he extended that hand of, 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 of fatherhood and leadership to many of us who didn't who didn't have a father in our lives. And and it was it was transformative. And what I think is interesting is that earlier you you called gang violence in the Watts neighborhood and in Southern California, you called it a war zone. Yes. And you have said that a lot of the people in those neighborhoods suffer from many of the same symptoms as war veterans, PTSD, things Absolutely. like that. So so what can you do when they grow up in a culture like that to try to prevent gang violence besides, you know, what you just mentioned in terms of these symptoms that they're dealing with? Well, you know, I think that um, more recently, you know, um, you know um, social workers have now done, you know, studies and research and everything to see that individuals are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and hypervigilance, that um, that the, the, the way that we begin to address those things is that we have to address the root causes of them. We have to create sanctuary in the personal life of individuals, and we have to create safe spaces in the community where people can congregate and go and know that you know, that they're protected so that we could have like some authentic conversations and dialogues as well as we have to introduce people to, to alternative healing technologies. I mean, we, we, you know, um, for an example, just like say massage therapy, you know, um, rarely do we attach therapy to the end of massage. You know, you go in the neighborhood and you say, Hey, I want to take you to get a massage. People start thinking about a happy ending, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm not talking about that type of massage, bro. I'm talking about the massage in which we move the etheric energy in the body that, you know, there's, there's a real correlation between, you know, touch and, um, and, uh, and, and, you know, the moving of, of the, the, the ley lines that are in the body with, with relieving stress. You know, um, introducing folks to somatics, helping them to understand the mind body connection, um, because a lot of times we, we really don't under, we don't they don't teach these things in school. You know, they don't teach life skills necessarily. They do these things as electives. So we, we have to introduce folks to alternative healing technologies. I'm, I'm also, you know, partial on on, um, you know, on these these dual diagnosis things that are happening in the neighborhood where so many of our young folks are getting diagnosed as um uh, you know, uh, what do you call that? This, um, uh, um, I can't even think of the name of this thing, you know? Um, but, uh, people, people are being diagnosed with, um, um, 
like um if you, I can't even think of the name of it. If I'm you sorry. think of it, we can yes. <laughs> we can get back to it. But I do think it was interesting that you characterize this as a war zone and from nineteen on you really worked to try to get to the root of the problem and to preventing gang violence and then an experience in your own life kind of brought that to the forefront. In 2004, your 18-year-old son was yes. shot close range in the back on the when he was home for winter break from yes. college. Yep. And you have said that you think possibly the fact that he was wearing a red sweater over his shoulders may have identified him with the Bloods, and it may have been because of gang violence. Potentially, yes. And and what I think is so interesting when I read this story about what happened to your son is it has really shaped what you do. And I want to read a quote, uh, something that you said. Despair and rage are understatements for what I felt after Terrell's murder, but I eventually realized that attacking the root causes of violence would not only help me deal with my grief, but also lead to preventing cycles of crime. So how did you take that anger and that hurt and that grief that you felt and and change that, not anger into the murderer who killed your son, the perpetrator, who was never caught, and change that into something else? You know, growing up, in the neighborhood, you see this happen over and over again. You know, kids make re, you know, knee-jerk reactions. They take a life. Um, they lose their lives in, in cases. And no one really ever wants to know what was happening in the personal life of that young person that caused them to perpetrate these violent acts. To even ask almost is, is like condoning. We create these kind of bridges, you know, in our thought and in our imagination about you know, wanting to know, like, what is it that, that caused this callous, this, this young man to have this callous heart that he would take another human being's life? I, I had an epiphany after that experience, you know, after losing my son. And I was like, we need to, we need to launch a new movement in this country, uh, a movement around reverence, you know, and, and to me, reverence is about the quality of attention that we give to someone and the intention to relate meaningfully. It's a shift in perception. Um, and so I was like, we, we have to begin to host, you know, conversations with, with folks in which we create space for them to talk about what has happened to them. Not as, as a way of condoning. Of course, I want the young man to be held accountable for what he perpetrated. And at the same time, I want him to get the, 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 the proper counseling and therapy and whatever healing modality is necessary so that he could live somewhat of a balanced life. Because, I mean, truly, his life is intrinsically connected to Terrell's for the rest of his. You don't kill somebody and then the next day you skipping and dancing and walking down the street. You experience your your victim's, um, uh, you know, face and, and dreams and flashbacks and imaginings. Um, so this young, this young man being able to reconcile what he did to not define himself as a murderer, but that that's an experience that ultimately can inform his life, um, you know, has the capacity to shift to me so much. You know, um, I, I think that, uh, that, you know, for me, um, it, it led me down a whole different path of, of wanting to host more authentic conversations and dialogues where we expose the taboos. Maybe, maybe, um, what happened to this young man that caused him to perpetrate this act, you know, was similar to what happened to me. Because I know how, you know, sexual abuse has the same exact symptoms as PTSD. 
you know, you become desensitized, there's trust issues, you know, the, the hypervigilance, you know, the, you know, not being able to sleep, um, you know, the trust issues, the abandonment issues, all of those things are manifested in your life. And if you don't get, you know, the proper counseling and therapy in order to kind of bring those things into fo- focus and balance, um, then you potentially can hurt somebody else. So I had an opportunity to go on America's Most Wanted. I asked a young man to turn himself in because I know how it is in my neighborhood. You know, my homies love me. And, you know, the conditions response in the hood is that, hey, you take one of ours, we're going to come and take one of yours. So I literally had to go and talk to the homies and tell them nobody go and put in work on on behalf of Terrell. That's not his legacy. You know, I had to talk to my family members because although law enforcement, you know, no murder weapon, you know, nobody was coming forward to testify. So there was nothing they can do. You know, the streets talk. So a week later, I get a call. I get the name, address and telephone number and a green light on this kid. So I had to really talk to my family members and tell them to, you know, to don't throw your life away, you know, by killing this kid or doing something to this kid or harming this kid. I'm like. I gave all of the information to the sheriff's department, to the detective that was working on the case. Although I never heard anything, I never gotten any follow through from them, you know, for whatever reason, you know, I'm, you know, I, um, I had to forgive, you know, this young man in my own heart. Cause it's a gift that I gave myself because I have seven other children that I had to be there for and provide direction for. And that, that, you know, that in every tragedy, there's a gift, you know, and unfortunately, you know, my son lost his life. And and I'm like, you know, there's a gift in this. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've been working to do is to make present the gift in the world, you know, around, you know, my son's um, my son's tragic loss that we now can host authentic conversations and dialogues, you know, around what happened. We can now not retaliate and do the conditioned response. Since my son was murdered, Sister Soldier from the Imperial Courts Housing Project, we call her the West Coast Sister Soldier. Sister Soldier lost both of her son. Reggie Sim lost both of his boys. You know, and these are all key in, um, um, participants in organizing the peace treaty in the neighborhood. A big Hank from the Nickersons lost his son, Purvis. You know, and none of those individuals retaliated. You know, and to me, it speaks to a bigger dynamic that we're now looking at truly addressing the root causes of the problem as opposed to, you know, just kind of perpetuating, you know, this um, this disease that has been, you know, given to us in a sense. And I think one reason why people found you so interesting in these Prop 34 debates last year in the move to abolish the death penalty is because you're a crime victim yourself. Your son died at the hands of a murderer, yet you do not believe, even if he was caught and even if he was in prison, that he should face the death penalty and that he should be executed. And I think that was a powerful statement. That may surprise some. So, why, when you are a victim of crime yourself, why are you against the death penalty? I don't believe in, as I said, I I told my homies that this is not my son's legacy. We hadn't been working for peace for 16 years and had been extremely effective, um, you know, past 10 years alone. I mean, you know, we've, you know, L.A. has experienced a 10 consecutive years in a row of decreases of violent crime and murder. And that's because of the peace movement that we started 20 years ago. Um, I'm like, you know, um, I don't believe in street sanctioned murder and I definitely don't believe in state sanctioned murder. I'm like, because a murder begets murder. It's, it's like, you know, there's no resolution. There's no, um, uh, you get no closure, you know, um, people who 
um, who get the death penalty, you know, they're, they're in and out of court for the next 27 years. The family is kind of dragged through that process over and over again, having to relieve that, to relive the experience of losing a loved one over and over again. And then after 27 years, if they do get executed, you know, I, I've never met one person who said that, hey, I watched the execution of a, of a prisoner and I got some resolve from it. No, it's like if you've ever seen somebody murdered before, it is, it's tragic, you know, and it, um, it, it, um, you know, um, it affects you, you know? So I can't imagine, you know, um, uh, anybody getting any closure, you know, from, from the death penalty. So I don't believe in it because I'm like, you know, it just re-victimizes, you know, the survivors, the, the, you know, the survivors of the crime. Um, and I'm like, you know, uh, not in my name, you know, not in my name. And other than the moral point of view on wanting to abolish the death penalty, there is the economics of it. And that was at the forefront of the debate last year. I want to read some statistics for our audience. Our death penalty system costs California taxpayers $137 million each year. That's according to the California Commission on the Fair Administration of Justice. In contrast, permanent imprisonment, lifelong incarceration with no chance of parole for all inmates currently on death row would cost just $11.5 million. Now, Prop 34 failed last year on the ballot. So I want to ask, what can you do now? And the people who support abolishing the death penalty in California, what's your next move? Well, you know, one of the things that we're focused on right now is preventing any deaths from going forward. So, you know, there's been a lot of work around, um, uh, you know, eliminating this, uh, you know, the, the drug system that they use in order to to execute people. You know, they've, you know, had, a, I would say this is a temporary victory for them because they've moved to the single drug system. However, um, still, you know, uh, they're not able to, to execute anyone. So, you know, we, we launched the Safe California campaign. Um, you know, we're inviting people to sign our petition to get involved. We're planning to go at this again, um, you know, hopefully in 2016. We moved the ball way down the field. You know, when the death penalty was reinstituted in 76, I think there was a 72% like, um, you know, 72% of the people voted for it. And um, and in this, you know, um, in yeah, last year, And I just years, want to explain to our viewers, there was a period of time in California where there was no death penalty, which right. is why Charles Manson is actually has a life sentence instead yes. of the death penalty, because he was convicted in that period of time. But then it got put back on the ballot and the death penalty was reinstated in the state of California. And so I didn't mean to interrupt, but I also want to ask, yes. why do you think that it did not pass. I personally was surprised last year that it did not pass yes. because several states before California that may be even less liberal than California, Connecticut and certain states have abolished the death penalty when they put it to their voters. And California did not. Well, I think that uh, we have a very powerful um uh, law enforcement and uh, and uh, law enforcement lobby here, you know, uh, the correction officers lobby, CCPOA, the Sheriff's Association, the most powerful lobbies in the state of California. They have lots of money. And even though it wasn't about like, you know, the heavy spending, you know, people still are uneducated about the issues as it relates to the death penalty. People think that you get to the death penalty and you go to jail and they execute you. They don't understand that, hey, you spend 27 years on death row before you ever execute it. The majority of people who died on death row died of old age, you know, um, 
you know, so there's there's a lot of educating that has to go on um, uh, about the about the issue. And I think that um, that, um, you know, when you look at, you know, uh, the issues that affect African-Americans versus those that 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 affect white folks in the state, it's different. We have a different perspective, a different uh, uh, conceptual frame in which we're viewing the issue to. So how how it's languaged, how how it's presented to, you know, to those who who actually experienced the brunt of violent crime and murder. And, you know, who, you know, African-Americans, Latinos, I, I think we make up the majority of the 733 people who are on death row in the state. Um, you know, sometimes it's the framing. And, and I think that we did an excellent job with um, uh, during the campaign on trying to get at some of those issues. But at the same time, we had, you know, three strikes on the ballot. We had there were several other major issues on the ballot that heavily affected the African-American community that kind of, I think, divided the vote a bit. And then also, you know, just investment resources. You know, we, we got to have resources. The camp, the, the, the cities in which um, we, we didn't do as well, uh, numbers wise, like San Bernardino County, you know, Kern County, uh, San Diego, um, Orange County, um, you know, we didn't have like, you know, really strong on the ground campaigns in those particular communities. And I, and I think that so there's still a lot of educating that has to that has to happen. But, you know, to me, I, I see it. I see as I, I see it as a victory. I think the next time that we go, we're going to we're going to win. I mean, we move the ball, what, some 20 odd points down the field. And uh, I, I'm you know, I'm hopeful that um, when we take this back to the voters in California, um, they're going to eliminate this broken system because it doesn't work for us, nor does it work for, you know, uh, for the families who are, you know, losing their loved ones to these tragic, you know, uh, violent murders. And so that'll be an issue facing California voters, as you said, in 2016. An issue right now going on in both houses of the state legislature is prison overcrowding. Mm -hmm. And I want to tell the audience about something that happened this week. A new plan was approved by both houses of the state's legislature on Wednesday, where the state will ask a panel of federal judges to reconsider an end-of-year deadline to ease prison overcrowding, saying the state would prefer instead to spend funds on rehabilitation and mental health services for inmates. And I want to read some statistics for audience as well. The state holds 120,000 prisoners um, in 34 facilities, and they must reduce the prison population by about 8,000. That's what the panel of judges had said. Yes. And this was due to a lot of lawsuits about the poor conditions mm -hmm. in prisons right now. And you take a different perspective on this rather than, you know, moving these prisoners around into uh, private lockups, county jails, out-of-state prisons over the next two years, which was a plan that was thrown around. Mm -hmm. You believe in spending those funds on rehabilitation and mental health services. How do you think that will ease prison overcrowding, especially with the poor conditions currently going on? Well, the majority of, 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 of folks who are incarcerated are, are there for, for drug reasons, for, you know, addiction and different things like that. Um, it's, um, to me, it's, it's ridiculous that we're, you know, trying to apply a criminal, uh, like a criminal justice solution to a health problem. So, you know, one, one of the things that we need to do is all of the individuals who are in prison for drug related crimes, we need to, um, uh, th that's a health issue. We need to approach it with a health, uh, um, a health solution. So they don't need to be in prison in the first place. They need to be in community-based alternative programs, uh, substance-induced programs, mental health programs, where they can get the proper counseling and therapy and services that they need in order to, to bring some balance into their life. 
One, that would decrease the prison population like majorly. The second thing is sentencing laws. This is the thing that actually is, you know, um, is, is causing the overcrowding in the prisons is, you know, over sentencing people, all of the mandatory minimum sentences, which is just ridiculous, you know, and it's costing taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars um, for, um, you know, petty crimes. The, the 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 second offense, you know, the second strike offense, you know, folks is going to jail, uh, you know, for extended periods of time, which is just for for minor violations. It's like, come on now, you know, we we have to stop this, you know, because you know we're becoming a police state around here, you know. Um, I, I think that also um, that you know government has to create a much stronger partnership you know, with, with community-based, you know, alternative solutions. Now, I, I'm with evidence-based practices, um, you know, programs that, that have evidence-based practice that prove, that's proven to, you know, decrease, um, you know, uh, you know, their uh, addiction to drugs and, you know, their recidivism. I mean, going back and forth to prison and all of these particular things. Um, but also, I'm heavily in support of of community-based organizations, small mom and pop, you know, nonprofits in the neighborhood that have, you know, these homegrown solutions that have also been effective. Um, I think that that the state needs to fund both these type of initiatives. Now, I, I know that, that, that Steinberg is proposing a, like a $75 million investment in these programs. It's far too little money. I mean, we need to bring that up to about maybe three, four hundred million. And then there needs to be some systems put in place um, in county municipalities and cities all across the state to ensure that those resources actually get to community. Um, because, you know, but taxpayers will ask, where is that money going to come from other than our pocket or defunding other important programs? And I have a feeling I know the answer to this in terms of the death penalty <laughs> being one big, you know, source of funds. But yes. but where would this money come from to fund these programs? The money can come directly from, you know, we're, we're operating in the black right now. You know, we have a seven hundred million dollars surplus. Um, I'm like, the money can come right there from there. I think that we can decrease the amount of resources that we're, that we're spending on prisons. I'm like, you know, there's always been that comment, the, the argument that it takes less to educate a child than it is, than it takes to incarcerate, you know, folks inside of institutions. I think that we need to really look at that. Um, you know, there's a lot of money that we waste, you know, um, in, in prison systems. There's a lot of money that we waste in these in these over sentencing all of these extra judges all of these extra prosecutors all all these extra folks that we're paying for but some may ask why spend that money on these prisoners or on these programs as opposed to on education like you said education may need the funds and starting it at that early stage well honestly um i'm like it's not about spending money necessarily on the prisoners you know it's like we have a thing called the department of corrections and rehab I mean, correct and rehab, you know, so that you cut recidivism. I'm like, if you're creating a permanent, you know, a prison, you know, a, a, a permanent prison population, you know, that that is paying folks and people are eating and living off of this this system. I'm like, uh, come on now, you know. That's uh, why I want to read a statistic for our audience. You said the California Department of Corrections and Rehab, they reported in November 2011 that two out of every three people leaving its prisons were back within three years. And it is that recidivism that is a problem in terms of this overcrowding. And you mentioned some local programs that you 
thought were beneficial. Um, I read an article you wrote where you said that San Bernardino County has partnerships with local educators and workforce programs to prepare prisoners for effective reentry. And then you mentioned another program, Fresh Lifelines for Youth, which starts even earlier providing teens who've broken the law with mentoring and other support to put them on the right path. And three out of four teens in their program avoid future offenses and go on to graduate high school. So is is that the answer here? That's the answer. There's there's hundreds of, of organizations and programs that are operating in cities all across the state that have been extremely effective at decreasing recidivism, you know, and in, um, you know, in making communities safe. Case in point, you know, I was a part of the peace movement in the city, you know, um, you know, with with gangs. 1988, 89, 1100 murders a year today, 300 murders a year. Okay, you know, to me, that is a proven fact. You know, community has a strategic partnership with law enforcement, gang intervention, law enforcement working together to decrease violent crime and murder in our city. So I said earlier, um, 10 consecutive years in a row, L.A. is no longer on the top violent, most city uh, top uh, most violent city list. You know, 16.8% decrease last year in violence in the city, a 30% decrease in the first quarter of this year alone in gang homicides. You know, I'm like, there is, there is a trend, you know, that's happening all across the country, um, where community is now engaging partnerships with, with government and working to decrease violent crime and murder. We need to have more of that. There's an organization in the state, um, that's, um, been around for about a year now, California, uh, for safety and justice. Um, that's working to create like smart solutions, you know, to a lot of the criminal justice waste that's taking place. I'm a strategist with the organization. I'm working with the Crime Survivors for Safety and Justice Initiative um, that basically um, organizes, you know, survivors and, you know, victims, you know, victim survivors. You know, a lot of folks um, in the African-American and Latino community don't identify necessarily as victims um, because, um, again, if you were victimized and then you protect yourself and did something and went to prison, you lose your victim status in many cases, you know. So many of the survivors are coming together to raise their voice to say, hey, you know, we're experiencing the brunt of violence and crime in the city. And yet we don't get the proper counseling, therapy, habilitation services, recovery services, mental health services that we need in order to heal from the trauma that we're suffering from every day. And so these are the these are the, the places that we want the resources to go right now. You know, we're doing a um, a, a countywide campaign. We call it the Think Twice campaign in which we're bringing together both traditional and non-traditional victims and survivors of violent crime and educating them about the issue so that we can raise our collective voice to be able to get resources, you know, to families to support them in their healing journey. Because it's like, you know, AB 109. A billion, 200 million flows into our community. How much does community-based organizations get? About $6 million, okay? It's like, it's unacceptable, you know? Um, uh, if, if The first line of any public safety effort in the community is the community in itself, you know? And so um, traditionally, you know, we tend to think that uh, that, that the victim community is uh, kind of like white middle-class women. Um, and they've been at the forefront. The CVUs, Crime Victims United of the World, has been instrumental in pushing a lot of the doom and gloom legislation in the state from three strikes to juvenile life without the possibility of parole, all of these things. And we now see that it doesn't work, you know? 
And we, we empathize with them as a survivor of a violent crime. You know, I, I empathize with them, but I'm, I'm here to say that I'm like, you know, to my white allies, you know, in, 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 uh, uh, Riverside and in Orange County that in my neighborhood, we experienced the brunt of violence and crime in the state. African-Americans, although we're 6.8% of the population in the state, we lead in every single category of victims of violent crime. And I'm like, we don't get the necessary services and resources. I'm like, support, you know, real change, support transformative change in our communities by redirecting these resources into efforts that have proven to decrease violent crime and murder. The gang intervention prevention movement has been wildly successful, you know, at decreasing violent crime and murder on the streets in our community. I'm like, let's invest in it. Let's stop talking about, you know, oh, we don't have the money. You know, you know that high-risk intervention in the city of Los Angeles gets about $6 million a year? $6 million. This is a city. You know, about 13 agencies get funded. I mean, when Connie did her report about, you know, seven, eight years ago, she said that we needed $50 million just to make a dent in this thing. But we've done it with nothing because nobody wants to see their loved ones die. Nobody wants to see their loved ones hurt, you know, but... And I, and I think that, you know, even within all of that, you know, there's still a, a serious like kind of issue around um, race, you know, um, uh, in the system. There's a there's a you know, racism plays a major role, you know, in why, you know, communities of color doesn't get the necessary services that it needs in order to to bring balance to some of the conflicts that exist there, you know, and. You know, we're, 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 you know, Trayvon Martin, we're starting to move very slowly towards that, you know, that conversation. But these are the type of dialogues and conversations that really needs to be um, hosted and had um, in the culture without pointing blame, you know, um, without making, you know, uh, people uh, ashamed of some of the decisions or even some of the thoughts that they might have, you know, because I think that we're all victims of this um, um you know, of this kind of manifest destiny like thing that we've inherited as Americans in this country. You know, we, we've all been collectively wounded. And um, uh, and then we have to contend with the illusions that are created around, you know, black America, white America, brown America, you know, Asian America. I'm like, no, we're Americans, you know, and we need to um, come together and sit down at the table and deal with some really hard issues, you know. Um, yeah. Well, I wish I had time to ask you more questions. This has been a fascinating conversation. I could talk so much more with you about everything from prison overcrowding and the death penalty to preventing gang violence to racism, as you said, and how that affects so much of this in the fund and rehabilitation. So uh, I want you to tell our audience where they can find you and read more about what you do online. So if they're interested, they can read more online. You can find me. At um, at Californians for Safety and Justice, um, um, we have a website. It's uh, um, safeandjust.org. And uh, you could email me at asherels4 at gmail.com. Um, you can catch me, Keila Shirelles, on Facebook. Or you can always come down to, uh, to South L.A. on 3310 Central Avenue to Three Worlds Cafe. Um, and uh, you'll find me posted up in there, engaged in conversation with folks about all of these issues. Well, uh, again, that's so that's Three Worlds Cafe. Yes. Okay, so anyone in that area can go by and stop by and have the conversation we're having with him in person or, of course, find him on Facebook uh, or online. You can tweet me at Mari Fagel, find me on Facebook, and Ebony and I will be back next week. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening.
from producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, Dario Kristen, and the entire BHL staff. We would like to thank you for tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network. If you have questions or comments, tweet us at BHL Online or email us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. For more exclusive content, visit blackhollywoodlive.com. This has been a presentation of the Black Hollywood Live Network. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.